Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Florida is where I got my start as a birder. The topic comes up on this episode of the Bird Banter Podcast because my guests are Floridians. David and Dee Simpson live in Florida. David is both a top Florida birder, he's number two on the Florida all-time eBird list, and works as a guide through his company, Birding with David Simpson. Dee not only helps with that business, but has her own daily nature blog called dee8am.com, where she posts a photo of what she's seeing every morning, yes, I said every morning at 8 a.m., or more or less 8 a.m., and an educational poem about the subject of the photo. That's every single day. Pretty cool. They are the exceptional couple who manage to work together, have fun, and compliment each other to make the sum better than the parts. I hope you enjoy hearing their story. Welcome Dee and David Simpson to the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number 123. David D, welcome to the podcast. I found out about you guys when I, I'm going to be visiting Florida soon, visiting my brother. And I was said, well, I'll try to find a guest from Florida. And I looked at eBird and uh, David's name was right near the top of the list of, uh, of Florida listers on eBird. So I reached out to you through your website and here we go. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. It sounds like you guys are quite the duo. Uh, David, does David Simpson Birding or Birding with David Simpson or something like that, a website. And uh, you guys put up a lot of pretty cool content. Thank you. Um, yeah, I manage both our websites. That's kind of my end of the business. Um, I do uh, D at 8 a.m., a silly, a silly identification help every day. And uh, David's website is more about the business end of things. Um, we offer tour. He offers tours and guidance and we do classes together and so forth. Yeah, I saw some uh, educational video things, too. Uh, most recently, I think, was a turn identification. That was pretty darn good. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'm more into the technical end of it. Dee will tell you that. I like I could go drone on and on and on forever about how to identify things and turns are quite a challenge actually but yeah I, I like to I do the bird guiding I do consulting and I do teaching and that's my favorite thing to do is actually teach people about birds teach people to appreciate birds and their habitats and the management of those habitats and so if you go on birding tours with me you'll come away learning more than you ever thought you would <laughs> probably forget a lot of what you learned but that's okay you can come back and we'll do it again well, it sounds like a nice service. What type of uh, guiding do you like to do? Is mostly in Florida? Mostly I bird, I guide in Florida for the most part because that's where most of my experience is. And I'm here, so it's certainly easier to do that. Uh, my guiding is more customized. I don't do a lot of group tours, scheduled tours, where we say from the 10th through the 11th, we're going to go, or 10th through the 21st, we'll go all through Florida and have 12 people in vans and all that. I like to take you know, small groups, family groups, individuals, and do a customized tour for their particular needs. So right before we did the, did the podcast, um, I was setting up an itinerary for somebody who's visiting and had a list of species that he wanted to see. And so I said, okay, based on your list, here's realistically what we're going to see. And here's the best places to see them. And we'll hit this spot, this spot, this spot. And so that's the kind of guiding that I tend to do. That's what I prefer to do. And while we're out there, I'll teach you all about, you know, here's why the birds are here. Here's the habitat that's here. If we're on a state park or some sort of managed lands, I'll say, oh, it looks like they burned this area three years ago or two years ago. And here's some of the restoration work they're doing. And so I, I like to 
rounded out with more than just birds. So my favorite kind of guiding is with somebody who wants to learn about the ecology and the history and the birds in the area. Cause that, that's what I like to do if I go somewhere else. So I try and treat people coming to Florida the same way I would, you know, the way I would want to experience going to Arizona or Texas or wherever I happen to be going. So sounds like you have a pretty broad natural sciences background. I, I know that D uh, a lot of your morning things are about plants or insects rather than just birds. And it sounds like you both have a pretty uh, holistic approach to bird watching. Definitely. Um, I am a Florida master naturalist. Um, I joined, I took those courses when I, when I first moved down here to Felsmere. I, at that point, I was still afraid of spiders and snakes and things. And um, it was nice to learn all about like everything else that here is here just instead of just the birds. And David's always known that it's just inherent in him, I think. <laughs> I've been birding since, well, I've been interested in birds since I was about four. And I don't know how I got, well, I don't know how I knew, but when I first saw a ruby-throated hummingbird, which some people might know how hummingbirds are famous for flying up and down and sideways and backwards and all that. And I was at my aunt's house in Rockledge. It was the classic old wooden house with the porch wrapping around most of the house. We had Turks caps, which you don't ever see anymore, but that was a popular ornamental plant in the South in the seventies Has this little red flower, somewhat tubular like flower and it attracts hummingbirds. So I saw this male ruby throated hummingbird with its iridescent red throat doing its up and down and sideways and all that. And somehow at the age of four without any bird books, I knew it was a ruby throated hummingbird. I don't know how I knew that, but that was kind of what got me hooked on birds. And then I got a little bird book when I was in the first grade. We had a, a series of assignments in our language arts class, which is essentially first grade English class. And they, every week there would be a certain theme and we would copy down poems off the boards based on this theme. So one week the theme was birds and we had, you know, Robin red breast or whatever, but I don't even remember what the poems were, but just basic common birds like that, that most people knew. And so my parents got me my first little golden bird guide, which was a little tiny one it had just a sampling of common birds throughout the country. And instead of having them read to me from storybooks, I'd have them read from the bird book um, at night to go to sleep. And, and that that from that, you know, I used to like to ride my bike around the neighborhood a lot. So I'd go out and look for birds. Just I didn't have any binoculars or anything at that point. But I remember seeing my first robin. I, we get the first robin of the fall down here in Florida because they winter down here. Ironically, the first robin I saw was in the spring. It was probably the last robin of that season. I saw it in March of, I think, 1977 or something like that. So, And my parents would encourage us. My dad liked to go camping and hiking. So one of his goals was to go camping or go visit every single state park in the state of Florida. And of course, the park service kept getting ahead of him because they kept adding more parks. But and we never did do that. I still haven't even been to every state park. But we did have a lot of adventures going out and camping and hiking. And um, me and my brother, and my mom would go hiking and, and I would count the number of birds and animals and everything else that was out there because numbers Numbers and dinosaurs probably preceded birds in my list, in my interests. Um, so, so it incorporate, you know, numbers by counting things when I was out and also on our hikes and, and through the woods. And there was more woods around, of course, when I was a kid. So 
And so I've always been into birds. It probably kept me from getting in trouble in school and all that. Cause I would just be off doing, you know, chasing birds and stuff while other people were out getting in trouble and doing whatever. And when I was 14, I joined Audubon. It was, there was an article in the paper about the Christmas bird counts and the local Audubon at the time was Indian river Audubon society. Uh, so my dad saw the, the paper, saw the article in the paper and, you know, he always encouraged me to do stuff that interested me like that. So he knew I was into birds. So he took me to my first Audubon meeting on December 20th, 1984, I believe it was. And um, I saw that there were other people who liked birds too, besides me. And so we went on a Christmas bird count um, a few weeks later, about a week later after that. And I got 14 new birds, life birds, as we call them, um, including black rail, which is ridiculously hard to see i had my first black rail and my first savannah sparrow which is ridiculously easy to see on the same day out there i've only seen i think three black rails since that day actually in, in however long that's been 30 something years of birding since then so that's a pretty rare bird um, but they told me exactly where to go to get it and i walked down the trail and it was actually in the trail standing there and it ran off and if you know rails and little rails they do this little run fly thing they run along with their wings out and kind of fly and run at the same time mm -hmm. so otherwise they'd look like a mouse if they didn't stick their wings out so um i'm not sure if they completely believe that i saw it or not whatever but um two days later i did my second christmas bird count at Merritt island national wildlife refuge i got to go out with ken um i can't remember his last name now he was the former chief of security at kennedy space center so we kind of had that secret pass to go out into the security areas out there and all the guys, he had been recently retired. So all the security guys still knew him out there. So we got to go all over the place out around the launch pads out there. And I remember again, I got 14 new birds in a day and one of them was Eurasian widgeon. I think I actually had Eurasian and American widgeon as life birds on the same day, but I didn't realize it at the time. I had gotten some better field guides at this point. I had a national geographic field guide which before the Sibley guide came out, that was the guide to have. Oh yeah. Um, and so I was looking and I would, you know, I was just barely from, it had just come out a couple of years where I'd just gotten it and I would just read through it periodically and check things out. And I, and I saw this group of widgeons right next to the car in a ditch as we got out one time and they flew as soon as we got out. And there was one oddball in there. It was a bunch of male American widgeons with the, the green stripe on the face and the, white stripe on the forehead and there was one with a bright orangish head and a yellow stripe on the forehead and i said oh well that must be a female in there that's kind of interesting so i didn't think much of it and then like an hour later i'm just fumbling through the books we're driving from one place to another and i'm looking and it's like oh there's the male and there's the female i'm looking on the page and i'm like wait a second that was a male eurasian widge and not a female american widge in there and so i told them that and we went back and we tried to find it and i don't think they believed me that i saw it or not but uh, again, I was just a new birder, but, um, but I do remember that. I've actually seen several Eurasian widgeons at the refuge since then. So, And then I actually, strangely enough, a couple months later, I met the other DS, as Doug Stuckey likes to call himself in Brevard County. He was one of my mentors in the early days at the, of um, Indian River Audubon Society. He was leading his annual North Brevard field trip where we, because he lived up in North Brevard and he birded all over the place out there. So he would take us to all his favorite hotspots out there. And I had again, 14 life birds in a day, including barred owl, which we 
we kind of ignorantly kept playing tapes for them, even though they'd already come in. I didn't realize until later that's pretty dangerous to do that because they will sometimes zero in and whack you in the head. Um, they didn't do that to us, thankfully. But but I also said that was also that was at the end of the day after everybody else had left and three of us kept going. And, and we want because we wanted to get to 100 species for that day. And that was actually the 100 species for the day after well after dark. So it was my first hundred species day. And, and also I saw my first escaped parrot. We had a yellow headed parrot out of Maryland National Wildlife huh. Refuge. Somebody's pet that got loose out there. Yeah. And that happened to be one of the parrots that they illustrated in the National Geographic field guys we were able to identify it. Um, so that was all a long time ago, but that, that was a big, um, big change in my birding experience, finding out that there was other people and, and not being old enough to drive yet. I got to ride with all kinds of other people on field trips and stuff like that. And a few years later, I started leading field trips and it just kept snowballing from there. So, so having good mentors is really nice as a young birder. I, uh, I don't know how many young birders I've either had on the podcast or have met and, and most of them have, uh, some, uh, older than they are birders, either mm -hmm. young adults or not so young adults that are pretty uh, instrumental in helping them acquire the right skills and, and get around. Yeah, I had um, Andy Bankert as my claim to fame. As, um, his dad got me in touch, got us together when he was about 12. And he's off in Alaska now, but he's, he's greatly as ascended beyond me uh, but we used to go birding and i would take him out birding we'd do big days back you know 18 years ago whatever we did a lot of big days around the state we'd drive i would drive because he wasn't old enough to drive yet so i would drive seven or eight hundred miles you know from one end of the state to the other and get a whole bunch of species and of course he went out with his young friends and beat the record that we had set um a few years after we had done it and he also beat my big year record a few years about six years after i did a big year in florida i got 365 species i think and he went okay. out three he got 367 about six years later but um i'm not doing another big year in florida that does way too much effort to to do i wasn't married at the time that's that's the only reason i could do it right. so, so. <laughs> It certainly, it certainly helps. I, I had a Washington big year birder on as a guest, Will Brooks, who broke the Washington record in 2021 on as a guest a couple of episodes ago. And uh, it's a big undertaking as uh, the local news had him on the a little news uh, clip uh, with his girlfriend and his college professor. Uh, and his girlfriend said, yeah, it was pretty intense year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, no question that the, the less intense birder of a couple uh, pays the price for things like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a girlfriend either during the big year. That helped. No, I think, a lot, I think the, so. last, the last big year you had was, I think, the year before we got married. <laughs> well, it was a couple uh, years before, yeah. yeah. I did some a bunch of big days after I took about a year off after two big years in a row and they did a bunch of big days, which were much more easy to manage because you'd go out scout for a few days or a week and then do your big day or maybe a couple of them. And then, mm -hmm. then you're done. And then we met sometime during that, that spree of big days. I think I did 63 big days in two years, trying to set the records for each different month in the state and more importantly, try and bump the state record for Florida up above Georgia's corresponding state record for that month, which I did in some cases. But, um, but anyways, um, we ended up meeting at some point during that time. And so she did let me finish out that that second year of big days. And then mm -hmm. and then I was kind of done with that anyways. So. 
They can wear you down. Dee, tell me your story. Sounds like you have uh, at least an interest in uh, birds and natural history. Uh, How did that come to be? Well, actually, um, I moved down here from Massachusetts in 2000. And as I was pulling away, my mom said, you know, I'm not going to say bye to you. I'm not even going to miss you because I'm not going to have time to. You're going to get to Florida and you're going to see one of them big Florida spiders and you're going to turn around and come right back here. Because she knew how terrified I was of like spiders and snakes and things at that time. So I got down here and I was living in Rockledge at the time. And literally the day I got here, I went out onto my nice new big porch and there was this horrible looking thing on the porch. And it was, I swear it was like, it was like, I'm holding my arms about six feet apart. There's like, you know, it must've been six feet tall and had big red spikes on its back and it was white and black. And I'm like, what the heck is that thing? And I ran back into my house. It was actually only about the size of my tip of my thumb, maybe. And I slammed the slider shut and I actually locked them in case this thing on my porch could actually like break into my house somehow. And right then and there, I said, okay. I can either prove my mom right and just turn around and go home, or I can go to um, Barnes and Noble and pick up a book and find out what the heck that thing is on my porch. And it turned out to be a little tiny spider called a crab-like spiny orb weaver. And, um, you know, for David, his spark bird was probably the um, hummingbird. But for me, my spark bird was actually a spider. And after that, I started learning how to identify things and figuring out you know, what can hurt me and what cannot hurt me was my initial way of finding out what things were. But then I really got into birding. Um, I was out at um, Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge one day when I, I think it was like my first year, first or second year here, maybe probably was my first year. And I was looking at some birds and this old guy pulled up next to me and said, hey, you know what that was? And I said, not really. He said, well, that was a turn. If you wait here for a minute, there's going to be another one flying right along. And I said, oh, really? How do you know? And he said, because one good turn deserves another. <laughs> and I just started laughing. I'm like, oh, man, this guy's crazy. And so we started talking and he told me to go to Space Coast Audubon because I was telling him about all the birds I'd taken pictures of. I had just taken up photography at that time. So I went to my first Space Coast Audubon meeting and he told me to look up this guy, Travis McClendon, a good friend of ours now and has been for me since. And so I had all my, I was shooting film at the time. And so I had all these pictures pasted in a little notebook. And I thought I had a life list of like, you know, 200 birds. And I showed my little book to Travis and he looked at the first one and he said, well, D, that's a, uh, that's a laughing gull. So I wrote on the page laughing gull and I was all excited. And then I turned to the next page and I said, what's this one, Travis? And he said, well, that's a laughing gull, D. And I'm like, well, no, this one's got a blackhead. This one's got a whitehead well, yeah, so you took these at two different times of the year. And I'm like, oh, well, what's this one? Um, that's another laughing gull day. I had about 200 pictures of laughing gulls. <laughs> and after that was when I bought my first Sibley's Guide. <laughs> so pretty much since then, I've been taking pictures and IDing, and I wound up taking the Master Naturalist course to learn. I didn't so much learn about how to identify from the Master Naturalist course, but I learned how to teach people. And that became really important to me. And that became more, I learn more the more I teach people. Um, So I usually handle the beginning birders when we go out birding. And I sometimes consider myself more of an interpreter for David because, you know, he can speak to the experienced birders and he can tell, you know, new birders a lot of stuff. 
But a lot of times I can look at people and I can judge this person's pretty lost because David will be talking about the primaries. And well, you can tell that's a such and such because the primaries this song and the carburetors this song. And I'm like, okay, so I kind of pull the new birders back and I'm like, he's saying the wing is blue, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I've noticed that in some of your videos, there'll be like a little bubble, bubble talk things. I'm not sure right. what you call that, though, that are, uh, you know, a little humor and a little uh, education at the same time. Yeah. I, I tend to, um, I thought that I was just, you know, a complete goofball and Travis McClendon, I was out with him one day and he's like, what's his life list? Like 4,000, 6,000, something crazy something like that. that. Yeah, worldwide, he's, yeah. he's worldwide. He has this unbelievable life list and he's also a botanist. And he's just one of the most brilliant people that we know. And one day I was out with him and he's like, oh, look at that. It's a flying cigar. And it was a um, swallow, of course. Uh, no, chimney swift rather. And that was when I realized that like, there's nothing wrong with anthropomorphizing things if that's what it takes to help you remember them. And I think that was kind of the impetus behind my blog eventually. But I started doing a silly birding identification course called uh, non, non-scientific bird identification. And it really struck a chord with a lot of people. I actually, that was my, one of my final projects for the Master Naturalist course. And people really enjoyed it. Um, it just really struck home for a lot of people who just, you know, they don't remember things. I have some goofy songs that I sing in the class. Um, and it's just people really seem to enjoy it, especially the ones who just like myself, just need to either anthropomorphize or just find some other way to identify a bird rather than, you know, saying, well, that one's bird, that one's neck is a little different color or something, you know? Yeah, you do. You do it creatively, uh, and you are prolific. I, I was I was kind of boggled when I saw that you uh, literally put up a post every day on your blog, uh, yeah, a, a photograph, uh, a photograph. Uh, D has a, a blog. I think it's called D at eight am dot com or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes. But I thought I would read today's post. Today's post by D shows a a nice picture of a female uh, eastern towhee. Uh, and the, the beside his little poem it says, I am known as a female Eastern towhee. If I was male, my head and wings would be black. I stay close to the ground and fling sand all around doing a two-footed dance that's a little bit whack. I noticed that most of yours have a rhyme and they all are sort of a four-line little ditty. And, and there's a little information in there if you look for it. So I, I was impressed by how, kind of how you know, cool they are, but also that every day, oh my goodness. Yeah, every day since uh, January 1st, 2017. Wow. Yeah, I, I try to, I, I try, I definitely keep, I mostly keep them scientific, but I'll, there's always going to be humor in there because I'm just a goofball. But I always do make sure that I research everything. I make sure that the IDs are correct. I have a lot of people, you know, you talked about mentors earlier. And I found a lot of people just, if you ask, if you find, if you find a person who knows a lot, they're going to help you. Um, I found so many people just on the internet. Um, I use um, iNaturalist a lot. There's this wonderful guy who helps me with bugs, um, Brandon Wu. Um, he helps me with all these bugs. Um, uh, Travis has helped me with bugs and flowers and birds, of course. Of course, David knows all the, all the birds, so I don't have to really go to anybody else for birds. But I have people who help with plants. And there's just so many experts out there who are just so willing to help. And I hope we can, I hope we're like that too. I think we are, we try to be. Um, so it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, one of the things that I do when I'm out birding or if I'm out guiding, I hand out my cards a lot and I encourage people because people come up to me and, and they'll show me a picture. It'll describe a bird or something and I'll tell them what it is, or at least what I think it is, depending on their description. And I also hand them a card and say, you know, feel free to send me pictures of something if you're taking pictures and you don't know what something is. And I, I'm getting more and more people. In fact, before, right before we did the, um, the podcast here, somebody had sent me a, a picture of a, a red-shouldered hawk and was asking if it was a broad-winged or a red-tailed. And I said, well, it's a red-shouldered hawk immature. And then I gave him the run, the technical rundown of why it is. He was a little, he knew what primaries were and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have to, to dumb it down too much for him. But um, but I did give him the rundown. The red, red-tailed hawk immature would be, have broader tail than a red-shouldered hawk and has a black back with these little white speckles across it and uh, broad winged hawk would have had a shorter tail with broader bands on the tail and separating red shouldered and broad winged hawks comes down to often the whether the secondaries are barred or not so that's the kind of thing you don't describe to a rank amateur beginning birder but um well, I would explain what a second, what the secondaries were actually, if I did that. And sometimes in, in a situation like that, if it's somebody I don't know, they're, they know they're not going to understand secondaries and all that kind of stuff. I should take the photo and doctor it up and like put a circle around and say, here's what I'm talking about when I say the secondaries and all that. I did that for somebody recently who I didn't think would understand if I told them secondaries, but anyways, um, so I did that and I, and I get a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I, I do try to help out pe- with people like that and, and hopefully they'll come out and purchase a tour and we can go out and really learn a lot because most people come away probably with their heads swimming a bit because I do tend to go on and on and on as you probably figured out by now. I worked in the, well, essentially the park service. It wasn't technically the Florida Park Service, but I, I was doing park service work for about 12 years at St. Sebastian River Preserve State Park near where, where I'm at. Of course, I wasn't going birding. I was doing, we were doing prescribed fire. We were doing preparations for fires. I was doing exotic plant control. We were planning restoration projects, restoring the, the habitat as best we could to what it theoretically looked like before European contact here in Florida. So so learned a lot about ecosystems and natural history. Got to talk with some of the old time crackers in the area about how they used to manage back in the 1800s, whatever the way they would burn the lands and and I read up on the Seminole Indians and archaeology here in Florida, which we actually do have archaeology, even though we don't really have rocks here. We do have a lot of interesting history under the ground here. Um, and so I try to incorporate, incorporate as much of that as I can into you, know, you got to feel out your clients and see just how interested they're going to be. And some, some of them just want to go see birds and some are more laid back and want to learn more. So and I want to dump all of it on them but you gotta you know part of guiding is knowing how to read people and you know make sure they have a good time so you don't overwhelm them with too much information but hopefully you know the ideal client is somebody who well i guess somebody who's like me and wants to learn a lot about a lot of different things in the area where they're at so sounds like your clients are going to learn something whether they want to or not to some degree (laughs) yeah yeah so David, you have uh, done a lot of listing in, in Florida. I, I just glanced at your eBird page and uh, you've not only been to every county in Florida, but you've done, you know, you've got a list of birds in every county. So you've, that has to be intentional. I mean, Florida's a big sprawling state. 
Yeah, Florida is a very interesting state. I often tell people it's one of the more, most diverse states that doesn't have a mountain range in it because you have places like California has the mountains running down the middle of it and you've got a bunch of birds on one side of the mountain and a bunch of birds on the other side of the mountains plus the mountain birds there. Um, we sort of have a mountain range in our little scrub ridge running down the peninsula of Florida, but but we don't really have a mountain range. But because of where it's positioned, we pick up a lot of Caribbean influence and tropical influence in our plants and animals down in south and southeast florida in particular and then it extends up and onto the continent of the united states you get north of gainesville you're into south georgia and southern alabama so you pick up a lot of those more temperate species and ecosystems up there and even places like the apalachicola river has its own unique set of species and plants and there has its own ecosyn or biome if you want to use an older term for that um because of its position and, and its just sheer length, if you ever try to drive from South Florida out to the Panhandle to Pensacola, it's a long, long drive, almost as much as driving across Texas. Um, so it, it's, it's a very diverse state. And where was I going with this? this We're talking about county burning. <laughs> Oh, county birding. Yes, thank you. This happens a lot, you'll notice. But um, yeah, like, so county listing, it's another, you know, like I said, I got into numbers before I got into anything else. So counting things and all that has always been one of my favorite things is keeping, keeping records. You know, I just recently recorded my 10,000th complete eBird checklist for Indian River County right in my driveway out here where I've done over a thousand checklists. And you know, collecting data like that is has always been something fun. Just counting birds and and so keeping lists, of course, that's that's always fun. That's how you get kids interested in birds. You you keep score. You you do listing and play have a listing game. But the listing for me has always been a backdrop to exploring. To me, it's always you know doing the county. I have at least 150 species of birds in all of Florida's 67 counties. And that's quite an accomplishment considering some of these counties are really tough to get even to a hundred in. But by doing that, I've learned so much about the distribution of ecosystems and, and lands and, and species distribution within the states of certain species, you know, growing up in the peninsula of Florida, common gallinule is a super easy bird to get in a lot of areas. There's, counties in the panhandle of florida where i have worked and worked and worked and one i still don't have common gallinule. i finally managed to get it in 66 of the 67 counties but still walton county eludes me and there's very few places and you know tricolored heron you grow up in the peninsula of florida you think oh they're all over the place you go to the panhandle you don't find too many of those out there and, and hinga can be tough so it really gives you an idea of the distribution of the different types of habitat certain counties don't have a lot of marshes or wetlands in them. Flagler County hardly has any. It has swamps, it has lakes, has salt marsh, very little freshwater marsh. Um, so it's just really interesting stuff like that. And you see so many examples of land management. I mean, you know, state or public land management throughout the state. There's several different agencies that manage land. We have five water management districts. We have the National Park Service, National Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Division of Forestry, all different have different approaches to land management and and within those agencies there are different land managers but then there's private land some of the best managed lands i've seen out there for natural resources are in private hands um and a couple examples there was a place up in it's near the twin river state forest up in madison and and hamilton counties and i think you know well the particular place i went to was in madison county and it's twin river state forest is this 
hodgepodge of different pieces of land that they incorporate into the state forest there interspersed within there is this one area where they have a really great longleaf pine ecosystem and they do they managed it they, they cut a certain amount of timber out of there they are using it for commercial purposes they also have standard pine plantation areas that they've clear cut and, and are just growing commercial pines but they're actually growing longleaf pine in there too which is not as doesn't grow as fast it's not as good of a product but it is useful in places that are trying to restore longleaf pine um, for agencies or, or in individuals so but i was up there in early june in the middle of the day which is a terrible time for birding because we don't have a lot of birds around but there was a lot of birds out there i remember getting an eastern peewee out there there's blue gross beaks all over the place and there's all these great birds in this ecosystem out here that was heavily managed but it was managed for one side of the road was planted pines and there was a bunch of stuff even in there and then the the, the natural ecosystem if you will the only thing it lacked in that longleaf pine ecosystem was older mature trees like you would see the red cockaded woodpeckers in because obviously they were harvesting the, the more mature trees out there but they weren't clear cutting it and it had wire grass in there there was backman sparrows there was all kinds of things in that ecosystem there and and I've seen another example of that out way out in the western uh, panhandle. We went out there a couple of nights to chase western meadowlark. We had lots of eastern meadowlarks in Florida. Western is really hard to see in Florida. There was some way up in the northwesternmost part of Escambia County on the last county before you go into Alabama. And we got the birds and then we were just exploring around out there. There's a couple of us were county listing. We we're trying to find rusty blackbirds and brewers, blackbirds and all that. And we were driving down this one road and the same sort of thing. Longleaf pine ecosystem, nice and open. They burned it fairly re regularly, probably every two or three years or so. Open wire grass, everything but the mature longleaf pine to make it a, you know, completely natural area but it was very ecologically diverse a lot of uh, birds and other wildlife in that area and not to just kind of sterile tree farms that you see in a lot of areas out there so so those kind of things like that just that learning about the distribution of the plants and the different ecological zones and and seeing examples of that of um, land management both public and private and and staring into farm ponds out there and having the local farmers come up and ask what you're doing and then you know telling them and most of them are pretty friendly if you if you you know let them know what you know I even had a few people invite me to come out to their place and one guy told me because uh, a lot of these places have been in families for generations so with each generation that the large track of land gets broken into smaller and smaller pieces so one guy was telling me yeah you can you know i own this 40 acres over here if you want to go out and explore over there that's fine but don't go over to this place because that's my uncle's place and he's crazy so <laughs> um so you, you meet a lot of interesting people and hear stuff like that and so you know but yeah so it's, it's more than just you know amassing a list of birds and uh, it's you, you learn so much in the process of of doing that it's so that the the listing becomes a conduit for going out and learning more about the distribution. And that, that's what really what I like. And, and even with the big days, those were great because we'd see a lot of birds and we, we were always, of course, trying to win. Yeah. But, but the, with the big days, a lot of it with me was just the strategy, figuring out, you know, okay, this bird's likely to be here now here. And if we go over here, we'll get this many species of birds. And, but, you know, if we go over here, we get this many, we have a higher percentage over here. So yeah, the, the strategy involved in big days is what really always was exciting to me, not just 
obviously you want to set the record, but, you know, but it was a lot of fun beyond just, the, you know, the, the amassing a big list of birds. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm For probably- sure. Yeah. County birding is, is totally fun. I, uh, uh, you know, I, there's a group of us in my Pierce County here in Washington, and we have a little friendly competition every year to see who can get the most species. And, and we do a big day every May. And one year, a friend of mine and I did a big day every day of the month, but we've pretty much been doing county big days because state big days are, that's a young man's game. That's uh yeah. that is boy. That's a lot, a lot of racing here and there versus, uh, you know, just birding the heck out of a, a relatively contained area. Yeah, I County big days are something that do appeal to me. That's a lot more fun. It's a lot more contained. And, and I, I couldn't do a statewide big day anymore now. I just don't have the time. I do like staying married too. So, um, but yeah, we did, you know, back in the, the wild days when Andy and I were doing stuff, I think the longest mileage we had on a big day was 993 wow. miles. And we were literally driving until midnight that night in Vieira when it was a little bit less developed because we knew there was great horned owls out there somewhere. We were driving around and driving around trying to find, we never did get it. I don't think, but, uh, but we, we were driving right to the end on that day. Um, but we would do seven or 800 miles on a pretty regular basis. Um, yeah. But we would cover multiple regions of the state. That was one of the strategies that we tried to do. Sure. There, certain species would be found in South Florida or central Florida or North Florida. So we would sometimes try and cover you get most of the species in one region, then go in the afternoon. Cause if you do a big day and within a relatively small area by the afternoon, you're picking up one and two species at a time. So we would, sure. we would pick up, drive four hours to another part of the state and then get out and get like 20 or 30 more species all of a sudden. And we may have missed some in the first region of the state, but we'd get a whole bunch in the next region. So we would do, um, do that. And, worked out pretty well. Uh, sometimes we would get almost as much by staying in North Florida as we did going from North to Central or South Florida. But um, so the dump, we'd run the numbers and it would often be pretty close. So yeah. but I thought it was more glorious to do a 700 mile big day than to just stay in one area. So uh, there was a little bit of that involved in it too, for that strategy. But Dave, I'm going to switch subject just a little bit. I know that you uh, work at some of the bird festivals in Florida and Florida has some pretty well-known festivals. I know of the Space Coast Festival, at least. And what are some of your favorite festivals in the state? I have, it's kind of like trying to pick my favorite bird. It's, I often, my favorite festival is the one I happen to be at at the time. My favorite bird is the one that I happen to be seeing at the time. I, mean, I, li- I like certain ones. Um, the Space Coast Birding and Fe- Wildlife Festival I was involved in right from the beginning, because it pretty much happened right in my home turf in Brevard County, there where I grew up. That one has gotten huge and it's great because there's some people I only see at Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival because I don't do a lot of the national festivals. So I see a lot of the, the tour companies and the, the optics reps, the optics company rep and field trip leaders. And, and I do a bunch of field trips there and, and there's a thousand people coming there. And so it's big. It's not very personal, but it's big and it's it's very interesting. At the other end of the spectrum is the Everglades Birding Festival that Patty Cunningham and I do down in Fort Lauderdale area. And we keep the registrations down to about 30 to 40 people so that we can have just a cut. Well, we only have about three, maybe four guides if we're lucky there. So we keep the field trips down to a smaller amount and we meet at the same place. Everybody meets at the hotel in the morning and 
and we get out and we go and we come back at the end of the day. And, and Patty is a teacher by profession as well as, you know, I'm a teacher, just an amateur teacher, but we'll teach people about birds and how to bird. And we'll do a couple of talks. I did a talk on eBird this last time, and I think we're going to keep doing that. And we, um, uh, basically two field trips every day people go on one or the other and most people stay for for most we do thursday through monday martin luther king weekend because she's a teacher she needs the extra day off to do it we cover most of the ecosystems of the everglades we talk about the everglades and people get to know each other it's much more intimate so you see the same people every day um, as opposed to space coast so those are the extremes and then uh, florida birding and wildlife festival over in the tampa area is another great birding festival um, it tends to be in, in sometime around October, not always the same weekend, um, but that's another great one. There's a lot of great field trips. They do have some of the, they have a festival area with some of the vendors and such will be there. Um, it kind of, it moves around from place to place, depending on where they're going to have it. The West coast of Florida, Tampa area is a great area for birding. Actually, I grew up across from it, but my grandparents were in Tampa. So we went over there quite often as kids. So those are kind of the three festivals, three of my favorite festivals within Florida that all have their own different, um, different good points and bad points, I suppose. So, so D, what, what uh, excites you most about uh, the stuff you guys do? Um, it's just learning new stuff every day. I mean, it's so hard to go out and not see new things. I spend a lot of time at the uh, St. Sebastian River Preserve State Park right by our house because I do manatee observations for the park there. And I do Eagle Watch for um, Audubon out there. I do scrub jay monitoring for the state park. And you'd think going out to the exact same area every day, you're just gonna see the same things. And I never see the same things twice. I mean, there's always a new spider to find, a new bird, a new bird, and rarely I find a new bird, but um, a lot of new, um, you know, bugs and spiders and critters and um, flowers and plants and, there's just always something new to find out there. Um, so I'm out there like four or five days a week, probably before I go to my day job. And it's just so cool that there's just always something new to learn, like wherever you go, especially places like um, Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge. I don't think I've ever seen the same birds there twice. I mean, you know, you'll see there's certain birds you see every time you go there, but it's not the same set of birds every time. So I think that's what I like most about it. It's just, it's just learning and seeing new things every day. So cool. David, what's uh, what do you see going forward in birding? Are you going to try to travel more? Are you going to hunker down and, and uh, do more stuff in Florida? What, you know, what excites you going forward? Well, I have been doing a little bit more traveling. I did uh, Southeastern Arizona Festival the last couple of times that they did the festival. I went out and led some field trips with them. And I told uh, Luke, who runs it, it's like, I know how to guide. You know, you've, you've seen, I, I don't know. The birds and ecosystems of Arizona as well, because I haven't traveled out there, but I do know I could be the second guide on a trip with two guides and I can drive the vans and stuff like that. So that's what I've done the last couple of years. And I'm learning a bit more about that out there. So I was set up to go to biggest week of birding um, until they called it for COVID and, and last year. I'm hoping to branch out a little bit more of that. I also like doing Florida quite a bit, but I, I am dabbling with the idea of getting else out to other areas, but I also kind of like, you know, Florida, I could stay in Florida the rest of my life and still continue to learn more new things and see more things. There's certainly plenty of places. Every time I get down to the Keys, I'm always like, I wish I had more time to spend more time in the Keys mm -hmm. or Everglades Park or 
the Big Bend region of the state is a very ecologically unique area. Everywhere I go, I could probably name off four or five places that I've been to that I'd like to go back to, plus four or five more places that I haven't been to that I'd like to get to. So, so I could easily spend the rest of my life in Florida just exploring here and learning more about Florida and, and finding more books to read. I always, I have a stack of several books at any time on the bed stand that I'm trying to read through at night, which is the only time I really ever read that much. And, and I just constantly keep getting more books, even though I haven't finished reading the ones that I've got, because there's always more to learn about the, you know, ecological history or the people living here. And I had a really neat book about the, the fishermen, the commercial fishing industry in Fort Pierce area, um, written by one of the local historians down there. And um, I read a book about the um, all the fossils that they found in Florida. I read about Vero Man, and um, which they did an archaeological dig right here in Vero Beach nearby here that I didn't even know about. And that was actually fairly recent. And I found that book and I read through that. Um, and so they're just, I've got piles and piles of books that some of which I've read and I need to read again because I don't remember as well as I did when I was 10 years old now. And um, so it's, it, there's, there's just so much more to learn out there. And of course, the more I learn, the more I can share with people when I'm taking people out and showing people about Florida. So, so it sounds like we could define a lifelong learner as David Simpson, someone who just uh, never wants to stop learning. That is super cool. Uh, Florida has a special place in my heart. My first day of bird watching ever was in the Everglades. Uh, oh. my, my wife was a birder. I didn't even know it. She's kind of on again, off again birder. And we we're visiting my parents who were wintering in the, the Gulf Coast and driving from Key West to there. And we had one night to spend somewhere. She says, let's stay at the Everglades. I said, oh, okay, sure. Well, whatever. And uh, she said, I'm a bird you know and i said really and she she, she uh, pulled her bins out of the out of the suitcase and uh, her little uh, golden guide and we started at the visitor center there at the everglades it was before the hurricanes destroyed that area and uh it was crazy pileated woodpeckers just destroying the pine trees in the parking lot and took a walk out on Anhinga way and almost tripped over a purple gallinule and got to the end of the walkway, which is now rotted. You can't really get to it anymore. The last time I was there. And it was like walking into that poster of the long-legged waiters. You know, there were just every long-legged waiter was, you know, 20 feet in front of you, just staring at the one beside it. And it was just like, Oh my goodness, this is, this is really cool. I could do this. And, never turned back. So it's a special place. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. I was just down there recently, actually. Yeah. And I, it's always interesting that the water was really high this last time I was down there. I remember noting that. So the birds aren't nesting yet because the water's too high right now, but there's always stuff to see out there. Um, all the, yeah. Summertime is pretty rough. If you go down there summertime, I have been out there and it is very, a lot of mosquitoes down there in the summertime. So now is the time to visit down there, but because um, there's not too many bugs and it was actually cold actually i i timed this last trip really well because um when it got the coldest i was the furthest south i was down in everglades at the coldest part of the coldest snap and then i came back up into fort lauderdale as it was starting to warm back up and then i came back home so i was able to escape it was still cold but not as bad as if i'd stayed home so yeah. <laughs> You are living right. Good for you. Uh, so I, I'm going to wrap up with what's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you guys? Uh, David, if somebody wants you to take them birding or wants to reach out, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, you can email me at simpsondavid at mac.com or you can call or text at 321-720-5516. 
That's the best way. I get a lot of calls. I've been juggling a bunch of guiding lately, actually, along with the Caracara surveys I've been doing. I've managed to managed to schedule everyone so far. I haven't tried to turn anybody away, but um, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So. And good for them. Well, guys, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I will keep an eye open in Florida for what you guys are up to when I, when I'm down visiting. Uh, so looking forward to that. And uh, thanks again for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast, number 123. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Until next time, good birding. Good day.